So then using curiosity to understand what is my entry point? Well, how can I design a system that will tap into existing incentive structures of the different actors and the most appropriate way in? How do we design a solution that we call nurture capital that truly adds value? And we're learning along the way. We're adjusting this framework that we have as we gain more experience with founders. So I love that. This is Curiosity That Matters, the show where we explore ideas that help shape a better world and talk to the people behind them. I'm your host, Nadim Shuker. Today, we're talking about nurture capital with Huria Obga-Michael and Joshua Haynes from Masawa. Masawa is a venture fund that advises, nurtures, and steers capital by weaving people, purpose, and prosperity together to advance human flourishing. Huria, Joshua, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nadim. So happy to be here. Thank you, Nadim. There's so much to say about both your bios and your journeys, and I think we'll get to cover that in our conversation. But may I start with my favorite part? Can you guess what it is? Favorite ice creams? Mm, no. Our common path. Uh-huh. You cheated. Tell me more about that. <laughs> what? To get to that path? No, I don't. <laughs> what is that common path? I think we all went to the same grad school. We did. Mm. But not at the same time. I'm clearly the youngest of the three of us. Absolutely. We, we agree. We, I, I, it, it's visually clear, but mentally, I think you're way ahead of all of us. <laughs> yes, we're all graduates of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, which sounds like such a fancy name when I say it out loud, like almost intimidating. But really, it's like kind of one big happy family all over the world. That's very true. Absolutely. It's like the first time I met you, Joshua. Can you tell our listeners about that? <laughs> so this was... Almost four years ago, uh, at a large tech conference in Berlin called Tech Open Air. Yeah. I was at a booth um, talking to people. This guy came by. We started talking. Oh, Nadim, thinking in the back of my head, you must have some Arabic flavor someplace. I wanted to see which spice you really were. And so I, I started speaking a little Arabic and, oh, that's interesting. And then we found out that we went to school uh, in the same city and we drilled down. And then as soon as we heard that we both attended Fletcher, we were friends for life. Exactly. It was like marked by a hug. We haven't known <laughs> exactly. the person for like three minutes. Exactly. I was like, oh, Fletcher, give me a hug, <laughs> which was great. And, and it's such a staple of the school, right? Like you, you've been multiple places, you speak multiple languages, you even spoke to me a couple of Arabic words then. Wait. And then you said Boston. It was like, I was already starting to connect the dots. <laughs> and I think the same. This you, white right? man who speaks Arabic. What is this? Gone to like, what is this? <laughs> Went to school in Boston, speaks Arabic. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. That is one common stop we all had on our journeys, but at different times, as you said. Both your journeys became more entangled, or maybe I'd rather say more of a shared journey since 2019 with the founding of Masawa. How has it been so far? So Masawa is in and of itself a journey and experience replete with the ups and downs of not only founding something, but being so dedicated to a passion and a mission to not only prove the thesis, but also to really make a mark. And that in itself has profound effects on our own personal journeys, on our own inner journeys, and how we show up in the world with our families, our friends, each other. And so it's been a great experience overall. Yeah, and I think to just connect the dots again, also to maybe our common pathways, 
I think both Josh and I, we've ended up in a place where we didn't necessarily expect to end up when we were at Fletcher, yeah. right? Um, and I think that's also something that maybe we have in common with the type of education that we have, which is the ability to think in multiple disciplines and in an interconnected way uh, to basically see the topic of mental health not to be so far off from the topics that we studied back in school at in International Relations School. So for us, that was sort of a no-brainer. There's a third Fletcher graduate actually in our team. And, and I think that is very helpful when you're actually trying to connect, to connect the dots and trying to create change in sort of, you know, in a systematic way. The learning journey is always unraveling and, and is reinvested perhaps in how you see the future of Masawa, how you change, how you pivot. But Masawa, it seems, is a pioneer not only in being probably the world's first or one of the first funds that is focused on mental wellness, but with this idea of nurture capital that you're pioneering. So I'm curious. Oh, yeah. What is Nurture Capital and why does it matter? Yeah, so Nurture Capital uh, is the idea that we say, yes, we are a fund and we invest to make profit. We invest in ideas that we believe will change the world. But number one, we don't want to make just a profit. We also want to nurture the capital to make sure that we actually do create impact that we can measure. So that impact relates to in this case, are people really better off with the solutions that are being offered in the area of mental health? That's the external impact. And also the internal impact. Are the people that are part of these companies that are creating these solutions better off through our investments? So we look at, in addition to profit, the aspect of purpose and how to measure that impact and the aspect of the people and how to measure that impact. Is capital used to nurture or is the capital being nurtured? I think it's both. You use your capital as an investor to nurture the capital, in this case, the human capital, but you also definitely make a difference in the way these organizations then themselves create added value. And I think we believe that it's possible to keep all of these perspectives in mind and not necessarily lose out on any of those. I think there's always a negotiating between those different areas. And it doesn't mean you get the perfect results on profit, on impact, or on the internal health of the organization. But it's about being intentional and negotiating these elements to try to get the best result possible in the long term. What needs to be in place then for capital to be deployed with this in mind? So not only a system or framework to be able to assess and conduct due diligence on potential investment opportunities, but also the co-created program that we do with founders to see where they're at in their journeys on their, the leadership side, on their effectiveness, on their resilience, their adaptability, but also where they want to be as leaders and providing the tools, resources, coaching, co-founder coach, team coaching, a number of different options that we have at our disposal to ensure that we're helping to reduce the friction or increase the resilience as founders go through the entrepreneurial journey. If we take a macro look at one of the strategic reasons why we're doing Nurture Capital, 
because we firmly believe as an impact fund, we don't have the luxury of allowing or encouraging a large amount of our investments to fail. In the traditional venture capital world, it's normal that 90% of a portfolio fails, uh, whereby 10%, maybe one or two companies, is extremely successful. With the mental health crisis, we have to ensure that the products and solutions we're investing in have the greatest chance and opportunity to be successful and have uptake and to essentially build a flywheel of external impact, people's changing lives, increasing the ability for those products and services to be delivered to additional users. And so because we know one of the most prominent indicators or causes to startup failure is human conflict, co-founder conflict, ego issues, not understanding your deep whys, burnout, et cetera, we need to mitigate that human capital risk. So it's a bit nurture capital. Yes, it sounds honorable, applaudable, but it's also a strategic reason on both the financial returns, but also on the social returns to which we are held accountable. In one of your previous conversations, you, you asked your interviewers, actually, you know, how much they would price, let's say, the ability to reduce by a certain percentage, I think it was 10% of the risk of failure mm -hmm. of their own portfolio and startups. Mm -hmm. And and it was interesting because um, whether it's them or maybe others in the field, it it's, seems to be hard to put a price onto that or to answer that. So, you know, connecting the dots does not seem to be happening as easily within that <laughs> ecosystem. You know, capital deployment is a human decision. Mm -hmm. So where are we in terms of collective consciousness by those who are deploying capital on the role that capital can play or on the need for a concept such as nurture capital? Yeah, that's such a good question. And I think, you know, I always wonder, even for those investors who understand this, because most investors will tell you the people matter more than the idea that they invest in. I don't think that they don't care necessarily. But the question always is, is there a pressure point for you to have to change? And so long as the system works for them, there isn't really a pain point to change. So that's one thing, right? Because you asked earlier, what, what needs to be in place for nurture capital to work? Well, for those people for whom the system has worked so far, meaning all I need to focus on is the spreadsheets, the numbers, the business, and my gut instinct when it comes to looking at a founder and feeling that this is the person I'm going to bet on. So long as I feel that this works for me, there won't be that much of a pain point to change, I think. But for those who do want to change, what else needs to happen is that in a, in a regular fund, you don't have the setup, you don't have the expertise, you don't have the comfort level to look at the human factor in more detail. You usually don't have the profile of a coach or people person as part of the ranks of uh, a fund, right? They're most of the time quite lean in terms of structure and human resources. And so they have traditionally really relied on those very cognitive skills for hiring the right impact partners, or I would say investment partners, impact partners might not even be part of, of that group of people. So really, if we wanted to change the conversation around investments and to have it be nurturing investments, we have to look at how do we expand the consciousness 
the competencies, the awareness, and the skill sets of those who are in the investment world, right? That's how I look at it in terms of if you want systemic change. And I think it starts with the fact, yes, I can't put a price tag on reducing the risk when it comes to the human factor, but what mindset would I have to have, right? Can I basically expand my consciousness and think of additional aspects that I take into account when making decisions? And the fact that we are currently in many investment decisions relying on our gut, I think is problematic because everything that we know about human decision making is that gut instinct is fantastic, but it should definitely be complemented by something more, um, maybe something more objective or data driven that allows me to have a conversation with a founder that is actually also a learning conversation for the founder and learning something about themselves. So I think there are different models that we're trying out and trying to bring the human aspect into both the assessment process as well as the investment phase, right? But these are things that are maybe not traditionally part of a fund. If, if one was to imagine what success might look like in terms of your objective and aim to spread this for nurture capital to be basically, let's say, a standard within funds, what would it look like? Actually, we were just discussing this yesterday, that there's different options really of doing it. If you keep your fund at a very lean level, you have one GP, maybe one, you know, um, impact, uh, one, uh, well, maybe you have actually specifically somebody for external impact and you're thinking, I can't afford yet a third person that's now going to have sort of a coach background or a people background. You can always bring expertise in on a, on a needs basis, right? But I think at a very minimum, you do want to sensitize the GPs particularly of what, the, what impact they even themselves have on the well-being of the founders. That's masterclasses, courses that you can take. You can sensitize them around, how do I lead my conversations with founders so that I am aware of how our relationship can help build trust and strengthen them and their leadership competence and their ability to take care of themselves. These things are sort of consciousness raising and expanding and learning, also learning listening skills, learning asking the right questions that any GP can learn. And then when it comes to understanding more the in-depth of, so where is this founder specifically with regards to their leadership journey, right? And their well-being journey. And what is progress for them? And how do I help them get there? You can bring in expertise. You can actually have that be someone that you bring into your due diligence process, right? That you hire from outside. So there's very different ways that you can sprinkle your investment journey with nurturing approaches. And on the quantitative side of the goals that we're looking at, with this first fund that, that Misawa is, is focused on is frankly a proof of concept fund. Can we, at the end of the day, indicate that a certain, that we have a, a, a lower failure rate in our portfolio because of our nurture capital approach? You know, models are models and they're never right, but some of the modeling that we've done shows that if we can just reduce that the traditional failure rate by one third, that results in a 1.77x return on the financial side, which any investor would love to have. And so just by the matter of fact of doing that and being able to show the evidence collecting the data during the period of, of investing, um, that at the point of 
releasing that information, it becomes something that investors have to have. Um, so it's it sh showing and not necessarily telling. What role do founders potentially play in that sense, right? If, if they become the leverage point, if, if founders start requesting or asking about this yeah. and putting this as an evaluation, I mean, you know, not all founders potentially are in position to be choosing who their investors are. Um, but yeah, what, what role do founders have? Huge. I, in fact, I think that the two pressure points are founders. And once the financial climate has improved, I think they have more leverage than they currently probably have. And on the other hand, though, also LPs, where the makeup of LPs might be changing, right, with time. You would have investors, you know, high net worth individuals that are increasingly younger who are actually looking at where the investments go. So you could have pressure from both points, actually, on the investment world where they have to rethink their approach. I think for venture capital, that pressure is probably not as intense as it is if you look at big institutional investors when it comes to ESG, for example, right? That that pressure is already there. Mm -hmm. But I think founders, the conversations that we're at least having, founders are very explicit and their reaction to the conversations we have with them as part of Nurture Capital is incredibly positive. And we've heard several times now founders telling us that they've never had conversations like this with investors and that they would like to have more of these. So we need to create that pressure. I think even if it doesn't exist right now, we really have to create that pressure. And, and like any system, I guess there's, we need time, right? There's a lag. That's uh, right. Whatever's sure. being done now and, and you being you know, one of the pioneers in this is going to take time to change this. That's right. We'll come back later to you know, talking a bit about the role that you are playing within such an ecosystem because it does seem that it's multiple hats that you have to wear at the moment as you build up awareness around that topic. But maybe if you can take me through, let's say a typical conversation with a founder you might invest in or have invested in. Um, and I'm being intentional here about using the language of you know, founder rather than company. Mm -hmm. um, so on one end, what, what does a conversation look like with a founder? And on the other hand, what does a conversation look like with a funder mm -hmm. that might, um, that you're advising on nurture capital or are asking to invest in your own fund? So on the founder side, we take a three-prong approach. We have something we call the hex frame approach where we're looking at two elements of people, two elements of purpose, and two elements of profit. And so Haria leads the elements of team, uh, self-leadership in a number of different areas, and then team leadership, and trying to really suss out the willingness and ability for the founders to understand where they're at, uh, where they need to go, and what are the bridges they need to cross to get there for themselves, for their team, for their vision. On the purpose side, the external impact, we look at what's the existing data and evidence that the products and services that the companies are working on will have an, a measurable impact on essentially the number of people who self-report to have increased mental wellness. And then at the same time, we look at what's how important is impact thinking, impact modeling, theories of change important for the company, and what's their ability to, as the business progresses, to make sure that that's part and parcel a key decision into how they're running their business. And then lastly, the profit side, looking at both the economics, the existing economics, the market, 
the unit economics, the traction, the product itself, uh, and then the scalability, whether that be up or down, so the depth as well. And so that those discussions take place over a series of, of meetings, all undergirded by an environment we try to create as investors, one of a vulnerability, being very honest about who we are as humans, where our blind spots are, in order to change, to help change, it's very difficult, the paradigm that exists between those who have power, capital, and those who need that power. Very intriguing as a, as a founder myself, currently working on my tech startup, just listing those, right? For me, it's almost an inventory of things that one needs to ask themselves. Sure. I think just by starting that and thinking, well, you know, there are things that I probably would not have off the bat thought about in terms of my role as CEO, CTO, whatever that might be, which is the typical roles that you think of, but as a, maybe a steward of this living organiz organism that, you know, I'm starting, but that I'm evolving with and that's going to be evolving with me. Yeah, that's exactly true. And I think this is something that investors have to be aware of as part of their responsibility. You're dealing with people who will go through, especially if they're first time founders, through a major growth period. And it will challenge them not just from, you know, in terms of business skills they have to learn, which is obvious, but as humans, as adults that have to grow into, into leaders that they can't even fathom at that moment what that will mean. So what else can we do to try to make this journey as smooth? Because it's not going to be smooth. So how can we make it less stressful for them? But I think I would also reiterate what Josh said, that we are at all times aware of the power dynamic in the relationship. So we're not pretending that we have these kumbaya, let's all hug and, you know, we're all on the same page. We know that we will have them to, to have to hold them accountable when it comes to the business results, right? That will not go away. Um, but nevertheless, we can use that awareness to still be supportive. We believe that it's possible to do both. And the feedback that we've gotten from investees that we've worked with is like what you said. Actually, you've made us aware of things that we weren't aware of. And we're using your framework internally to actually check in with our employees, to check in with each other. Where do we stand with regards to these six dimensions of engagement? Right. So that's what we ultimately want. We don't want to be just the watchdog. We want to give them systems, frameworks that allow them to grow. Mental note to self, I need to check that framework. What about on the, on the investor or funder yeah. side? So on, on the funder side, on the investor side, of course, there are a number of different angles depending on where they're coming from and what their intentions are. But there's not only the angle of investing in companies that lead to increased mental wellness, whether directly, companies that, you know, on the masthead say, we're a mental health company, or companies where the outcome is increased mental wellness, like companies around nutrition or urban space design or education, finance, not only understanding the market specifically as this fund is focusing on Europe, the market, the, the traditional aspects, but also posing the question specifically around nurture capital, how many of your current portfolio companies or funds have had issues? What percentage of these failed companies have failed because of conflict issues that potentially could have been avoided if dealt with? preparatorily and not as a result and making 
kind of opening up that Pandora's box of the fact that, no, there's actually something you can do from an investor perspective, from a, a human element perspective, which, you know, because we're also a mental health fund, we oftentimes with investors find that they themselves don't have a lot of outlets to talk about their own personal struggles or their familial struggles with mental health, what they're facing in the workplace, because investors, whether they be from family offices or those who have significant amounts of wealth, with that come incredible stress. And so a lot of times we find ourselves playing the role of the coach and, and kind of helping to put a little perspective on things, especially when it comes to how they can put their capital to work with the best outcomes. Would a typical question then almost be how many people, and in that sense, people who are working at the organizations that you funded are better off because of your investment? And not as a result of a product or service, but literally, mm. you know, and not only financially. Sure. I guess it's a question of how many people have been nurtured through the you know, capital influx that you just put there and, and yeah, and are just better off literally mentally. Yeah. And it is a very ambitious goal because obviously as an investor, you are also just one actor in the system that surrounds this founder. And there's so many factors, of course. So we don't want to, I would say, overplay the impact that they can have. I know that some startups at the early stages may have 20, 30 angel investors, right? So kind of need to put that in perspective. But what about if you are an investor and you have a portfolio of 20, 30 companies that you're working with, 20, 30 founders or founding teams, one of the indicators is how would I measure the trust in this relationship? Because trust is so important when it comes to you feeling that you are on the same page and that your investees will come to you when there are issues, that if you're a member of a board, for example, and you notice there are things that are not going well and you want to have an open conversation with your founder, is there trust, is there enough trust for the founder to come up to you when there are truly problems? Or for you to feel comfortable to raise these issues in a way that doesn't feel like you're imposing? Because the truth is, even if you put money in, even if you're on a board, you cannot force a founder to do the things that you want them to do. So what we're talking here is really about consciousness. It's about being very aware of what influence do I have, what my own triggers are, what are the results I want to achieve, and how do I build a relationship and a rapport in a, in a dynamic that is influenced by power that we can still be quite open and honest with each other. And I'm not saying that all human conflicts will be resolved in a happy way that, you know, the team stays together and you can double down on your investment and then they will become a unicorn. It could actually be that it ends up you realizing early on in the journey that this is not going to continue, whether as an investor or as a founder. Or that you have a smooth transition when a founding team realizes it can't continue like this, but does so in a way that doesn't harm the entire organization. Because these conflicts sometimes lead to teams entirely breaking apart, but not just breaking apart, but taking everything along. So how about even if a change has to be made, that change is made in a way that everyone can see, keeps face 
and maybe leave that endeavor with peace in their hearts. Imagine what would be possible. That founder who leaves might still be a very talented founder with 50 other ideas that you can support. But if you can't nurture the relationship, you don't tap into this because bridges are burned. Completely new meaning to talking about exit and exit strategy in that Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. What you mentioned or what you talked about was very much relevant to founder-founder or founder-team relationships, but also founder-investor relationships. I want to take a look here from a systems level. And what we're talking about is systemic change at the nexus of, of you know, health or mental health and business. It, if, you know, if, if it's not too much to say, it's actually what you're suggesting is a change to how capitalism um, should function to a certain extent. And to change systems, you need a whole ecosystem of stakeholders, of, of supporters playing different roles. You, as Masao, are effectively playing multiple roles yourself, advocacy funding, thought leadership, you know, training. Is it mission impossible to do this alone? Are you doing it alone? No, because no one entity in any system will be successful. So I think what we at our core with the fund is focusing on the capital and the nurturing side. So minimizing the human capital risk, maximizing, optimizing social and financial outcomes. A lot of the other things, the advocacy, the thought leadership, that comes as part of doing that, but isn't in the forefront. We're seeing slowly, too slowly, other actors becoming more interested in applying a focus on internal impact or on nurture capital as a system, and so are able to partner with them They're primarily in, in the U.S. And just recently, we, we are seeing a lot of uh, more calls from investors, not at the general partner level, at the GP level, who are making the decisions, but at the uh, investment analyst or investment manager level, saying we should do something about this, specifically the mental health of founders. And so it's early and it's coming. And so get ready. Can you tell me more about some of the partners you've been working with? Some stories like, you know, examples of how that conversation took place so this is i think there's a better question here um because it's not like we're partnering together so as masawa itself our capacity to do a lot of the nurture capital work both doesn't exist Or it's not entirely ethical for us to be doing a lot of the individual work. And, and especially when we were diving into super deep issues with founders, mm -hmm. that they might not be comfortable uh, talking to us. So we do have partners, a wide range of partners that we're using on the nurture capital side specifically. Okay. Yes. And we try to curate that support for founders in a way that's, that really hits the areas that they're most focused on in their journey because each founder can be at a different point. So for us, it's important that we bring in topics like mindfulness, that we bring in mental health in the workplace, that we bring in founder leadership competence and help them through multi-rater assessments understand better how they impact their environment. So our partnerships try to bring 
as much broad expertise when it comes to the whole human experience of being a founder and founding team into the nurture capital approach. And through those partnerships, we have also noticed that these are partners in the advocacy field, right? Some of them are actually common connections between us. These are people who are focused on founder mental health. These are people who are focused on first-time leaders and training first-time leaders as companies grow fast and they need to start promoting people into positions of responsibility. So I think those partnerships are absolutely essential because, as Josh said, the execution of it, sometimes you have to separate from being the fund and being the investor to being the one in a very confidential relationship with the founder to try to help them evolve, right? Sometimes you need to keep a firewall between these things, obviously. Okay. And I think if we zoom out and look at the metal level, we have a responsibility as a for-profit impact fund to also be in various other arenas, whether it be the philanthropy arena or the public funding arena. One of the reasons I founded Masawa was because of the frustration I saw with how capital specifically was invested in mental health areas. If you look at the numbers, the public sector invests less than 2% of its health budget in mental health. And a lot of it is on, on, on psychiatric clinics and care. On the philanthropic side, it's less than one half of 1% of health philanthropy goes towards mental health. Those numbers are astonishing. You flip it to the venture side, in 2021, there was more than $7 billion in the U.S. alone invested in mental health companies. But when people think of mental health and capital, where that needs to go, they immediately go to philanthropy or the public sector. Yeah. In Europe, because there's a more socialist system with the insurance company, people assume that the, the state will take care of it or the, the insurance companies. Well, we know the issues, of course, in, in Europe where people can't see therapists or get access to mental health professionals. And so while there are a number of actors and groups of donors, advocates, we, we make sure that we are visible in some of those arena to say there's a different way we need to how do we bridge that silo of how capital is actually being deployed actually on the ex external impact side in terms of having interest groups that get together there's probably more than on the internal impact side there's for example impact vc which is also quite a powerful group of investors who come together to kind of share best practices uh, and and approaches to how to establish an impact approach to investing. There's a playbook actually that was issued just recently that was published. And I think those platforms are incredibly valuable because impact is written on a lot of funds, but they don't really have a systematic approach yet. And, and Impact VC, I think, is, is very powerful in that sense. I would love to have something similar to that for internal impact, which is, I think, yet to be created. But it seems that there's key, there's a key tipping point that needs to be reached in terms of critical mass. Mm -hmm. and, and with some of the partners you mentioned, those working potentially on helping founders understand how to become better leaders, you know, they're collecting a lot of information and they're seeing actually potentially patterns where the challenges are and they can relate that back up to also investors, whether being an investor like yours, who's explicitly looking at this, but also other investors who might say, well, this is starting to become clear that there is a problem there mm. and then that must be addressed. So, so that relationship and that knowledge transfer between all of these entities is essential if we want to move that system forward. But we have to go back to the reason why this isn't happening. It's because the incentives currently aren't aligned. Yeah. 
investors are not incented to focus on the humans because they can make their returns with one or two companies. Even though if you look at the math, if you do much better with a company that is a half of a unicorn, preferably the front half than the back half, then that was funny. Absolute return to the investors can be so much more. Josh, you mentioned earlier that when you started Masawa, it was because of a frustration with how the current funding landscape is. Mm -hmm. But also starting Masawa is a personal story for you. Can you tell us a bit more about that and about your journey? Sure. Absolutely. So I think there were three elements for starting Masawa. Discuss the, the capital issue. The second is my personal story with mental health. You know, I had had careers in software and technology. I had been a startup founder myself. I had been a diplomat in the Obama administration, managing a large social impact portfolio. But in my mid-30s, I found myself in a burnout, in an utter state of despair, because I had never dealt with the internal side. For me, it was always about achieving. And working in lots of countries, learning lots of languages, going to great schools. But because of a traumatic childhood, being raised by a single alcoholic mom on welfare who herself struggled with mental illness her entire life, I never looked inside to say, how does that affect me? How does it affect my depression that I had forever, anxiety, issues with food? And when I was at my lowest, in order, my, my way of coping was to look at systems and try to figure out instinctively where the holes. And so as I became more aware and scared by the numbers around the mental health crisis. Mind you, this is pre-COVID. But then on the flip side, saw the amazing opportunities, not just in two or three years with technology, AI, but what's happening in 10 and 15 and 20 years. I saw there was this huge mismatch. So personal side and capital. And the last is the incentives. Knowing that you can't invest in a mental health company and expect it to grow incredibly fast because intrinsically there will be a toxic work environment that's created and people won't be connected to that purpose anymore when they only have to sell the product or widget. And so knowing that there has to be a different way to look at this paradigm, equal profit and impact, but that impact is also nuanced by not just the number of lives changed, but ensuring that inside the, the core of the enterprise is driven by the internal impact side. How do you live that within your own team? Yeah, that is, first of all, I want to bust the myth that people who, you know, are so aware of these things, they all do it better. I don't think that's true, <laughs> as I think our team can attest to. So it means that even if you know these are really important topics and, you know, you try to keep your awareness up, you still will trip and you still will you know, feel like you're actually moving backwards, whether it's in your interactions in the team or it's how you deal with your own mental health. So the way I look at it is it's a journey. It's not a linear journey. It's an up and down. And we try every single day to make it a little better. And for me, it's my journey with mental health has also been breaking down a lot of myths and biases that I've had, that I've grown up with. On the one hand, observing, obviously, that there are problems in my immediate family, people suffering in my circle of friends, and feeling quite um, helpless in those situations. I think for anyone who has family members and friends who suffer from mental health issues, 
you just feel hopeless and helpless in what you can do. And as a coach, I've been trained to stay away from mental health issues. That was part of the training, actually, in that be sensitive to it and know your limits as a coach because you're not a therapist, you're not a psychologist, a psychiatrist. And I think even that is actually changing as we start to see mental health as a continuum from thriving on the one side and acute challenges with mental health. Could it be through a diagnosis that you actually have a disorder or you just not being able to, to act in a normal way in an environment, right? And instead of seeing this as a healthy, unhealthy dichotomy, I see it as a continuum. And I ask myself, whether it's as a team member, as a coach, as a family member, as a friend, what can I do to create an environment for those around me to feel better? What can I do for myself? So taking ownership of my own mental health. I think educating myself around what mental health truly is, shifting my understanding around it, has definitely helped me mm. in dealing differently with it. You've had a long stint at the UN, and you were in humanitarian aid. Actually, in peacekeeping, but working a lot with the humanitarian community as well. So, I mean, peacekeeping is also a line of work where you potentially are witnessing trauma and dealing with people who've, who've had to live through trauma. How did that stint of your career also inform where you are now with this topic? I think in hindsight, I can put things better into perspective. I think when I was going through it, I probably was coping more than anything else, to be honest. Um, yes, it absolutely does. It brings you to extreme situations, especially when you work in peace operations in active combat zones, like in Somalia, where I worked for one year, where you have more TARS hitting the camp on a regular basis. So. I never thought I would be in a situation, frankly, where the threat is so great that you fear for your life. So, yes, I, I think these are, you know, potentially highly traumatic experiences. And what's really interesting is what I learned from that experience is people process these things in very different way. That we need to be careful also not to put everyone in the same bucket. So everyone who was in that camp must have been going through the same thing. I think that's what I've learned. And when I look at me and my colleagues and, and how we've dealt with these situations, that there's many different factors that influence how you process these very difficult situations, right? And what I also learned, I think, now with distance from that experience is how not having language to speak about these things has probably still made it harder on us than it would have had to be in those moments when you do struggle because you've experienced something very challenging. And I can say for sure as there is in the UN, especially when you work in that kind of field, there's an expectation that you have to put up with this. And humans are incredibly resilient. When you need to, you just keep it together until such time when you can let go. And maybe then if you know, things come together for you, you might fall apart then, right? But in that moment, we cope for good reasons. But I did wish we actually had the language and that safe space 
where it was okay to speak about these things more publicly. As a Lebanese, I can relate very much to this question about resilience. There's been a discussion recently in the Lebanese community and, and society around what that means and whether actually the fact that or how we claim to be more resilient is in itself a post-traumatic response. experience and response and um, part of coping. I am resilient, so I take the positive that I became more resilient because of this, but actually maybe there's something much more to dig deeper into. I think part of what you were just mentioning is, you know, on language and the vocabulary needed to explain um, what and describe what was happening to us, uh, to be able to deal with it, but also to tell people about it is a big challenge. And my understanding as well, or, or you know, talking to some people, the previous interview actually with this, with, with uh, Christian Basin, who is the head of the Danish Design Center, and he mentioned one of the things they're working on specifically is what is an epidemic in terms of or uh, in terms of mental health in youth um, in Denmark. And he said what we're lacking is the collective imagination uh, and the vocabulary to describe what things could be. How we shift our collective imagination. I know you are going to ask what we're curious about. And one thing that keeps going through my head in my work as I'm working with leaders and founders and all the challenges that society and the world of work is posing for them. One question that keeps going through my mind is, is the, the sort of the way we're imagining work and the way we're imagining how we need to lead people, is that sufficient? Or do we need to reimagine what it means, right? And I noticed that there's consistently new challenges being brought to leaders in particular to lead in different ways, to address all of these gaps that we see. Gap in belonging, gap in diversity and equity and inclusion, gap in mental health issues and, and taking care of your employees. So that's something that I wondered, instead of going to individual leaders and asking them to expand on their competencies and their ability to deal with it, there is something around what we mean when we say lead that we need to reimagine collectively. Because it used to be something that is either a perk because you've served long enough in the organization. It's a privilege. It is definitely a responsibility. But what is it now? What is it? How do you need to show up to help people to evolve in a way that they can give their best? And who do you have to be in order to be that? And if I reimagine that collectively, who will volunteer for these type of activities, right? Where do, we, they do, where do they need to sit within an organization? And I think we need to fundamentally just start reimagining what leadership means in order for us to really de redesign it and help leaders fulfill those roles. Because right now, it's piecemeal approach, and it's not fair to the leaders either. I would be really interested in what role early stage education can also play in. I'm with you 100%. What are you currently curious about? In the never-ending new cycle of technology, AI, brain-computer interface, scare tactics used by the algorithms to get you to look at more, to scroll more, is there a tipping point or how do we reach a tipping point? 
so that we're more incented by a quest for universal empathy, allowing us as, a, as humans to be much more humble and vulnerable to the concept of power, whether it be money, time, attention, and use that as a basis for being able to have different discussions. And the divisiveness is increasing. Loneliness is increasing. All of these issues are increasing, but where my, my curiosity is, will there be a tipping point or when can we start to see the usage of innovation writ large driving us back from the brink? Or is it possible? Curiosity played a role in setting up Masawa. You were curious about, you know, um, what is the current state of mental health? Probably played a role in you needing to come up with a concept and a naming and the frameworks that you came up with. Can you just tell me very briefly about how is the intellectual process for you of moving from curiosity to action? I, I mean, curiosity, it was definitely my first thought when Josh asked me to join because I did not know anything about the investment world. And then in terms of sort of translating it, I love trying to figure out how the system on the other side works. So then using curiosity to understand what is my entry point? Well, how can I design a system that will tap into existing incentive structures of the different actors? and the most appropriate way in. How do we design a solution that we call nurture capital that truly adds value? And we're learning along the way. We're adjusting this framework that we have as we gain more experience with founders. So I love that. And to Huria's point, intellectually understanding where is the system we want to live in what is the system currently and what do we have to put on hold or, tr or, or change in how we set up Masawa to be able to fit as a bridge between the two? I would love to follow up on that with digging deeper into, let's say, elements that might help with this journey. Um, courage, introspection but also psychedelics. But, oh my God. But I feel like this- Those are illegal. Topic. I know, I know. We can't do those here. No, no, absolutely. Especially not in the studio, maybe, but- <laughs> Exactly. Um, but I feel that could be a discussion by, by itself, like getting curious about the world of psychedelics in a mental wellness um, context can be a discussion by itself. So probably we'll leave that for, for a later chat. I wanted to jump to a series of questions to sort of close that out. And I just wanted to say these are questions taken from a series called 33 Days from the School of Systems Change. So I'll share a link to that in the show notes so that people can check it out. I'll also share a link to some of the resources you mentioned, like the ExaFrame. But basically, it was an experiment by the school where they design a self-reflection journey where you receive one question a day for 33 days. And we... Many of us who signed up for that like started the year with it. So it was from January 2nd for 33 days. So just shout out to the School of Systems Change and the Forum for the Future team for the permission to use some of those questions in my interviews. So those questions are, and let's try to keep it in like a couple of sentences um, in terms of answers. One, 
how are you perpetuating the dynamics you wish to shift in the world? I always feel that my personal preference for wanting to change systems from inside rather than from outside, being the activist that just bangs against the windows and, and, and the doors, always means being complicit. So right now, I do think we're complicit in that we are still part of that system of, you know, profit-oriented funds that are, first and foremost, have to make a profit actually to exist. And yes, it's very noble that we want to change it, but we're still part of it. So in that sense, we are perpetuating a system that is capital-oriented and not human-oriented. What is a question that I haven't asked, but that you know you need to answer? What's at stake? Meaning that what happens if we do nothing? I think that's something we need to be quite aware of so that we understand the sense of urgency with this. And if at the end of the day, the results are magnanimous, will it actually really matter? On that, you know, this show is about exploring curiosity that matter. Given the conversation today, given potentially conversations I'll be having with people in the future, what do you think I should explore next? And who should I talk to? I do think you should have that conversations around psychedelics and expanding consciousness and the impact it can have on mental health. And I think I have someone in mind that you should speak to. That's wonderful. And I think exploring the interconnections between things that we don't know very much about, like the gut microbiome or generational trauma is a very worthwhile endeavor. And another topic that might be worth exploring is the aspect of what role money should play in our personal development and at systemic level. How can we change our relationship with money? And I would know someone that you could interview on this who will give you some wonderful ideas. I am indeed curious. And I think with what you mentioned and one topic that was on our list, but that we will not be able to get to because of time on the issue of cities and mental health and this whole concept of, you know, whether it's the organization, whether it's the family, whether it's the city of, of these organisms, these systems that actually we need to really look at carefully and see what their impact is on, on mental health. Um, I would not be surprised if we also have another conversation as part of this podcast at some point in the future. Thank you so much for sharing those recommendations. And, you know, preparing for this talk with you has nurtured my own curiosity for the topic of mental wellness. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you for having us, Nadim. Thank you. That's all we have for this episode. Curiosity That Matters is produced by me. Editing by Simon Valero from Studio 361 in Berlin. Theme music by my friend Ramzi Khalaf. You can find him on Spotify using Sundowner or Instagram by searching for Sundowner Music. 
Check out ctmpod.fm for show notes and more relevant resources. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter, now X, with the handle ctm underscore pod. And we're also on LinkedIn if you look up the Curiosity That Matters podcast. If you like this episode, please consider sharing with three friends who might be curious about this topic and help them subscribe. You can also help us be discovered by leaving us a review. It'll only take you 30 seconds. I'm Nadim Shuker, and I'll see you next episode.